0: A subscription in perpetuity to Coming Up Next is completely free of charge. All you have to do is head to comingupnext.com.au, select your podcast listening platform of choice, be it Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, whatever. Hit the subscribe button, it's going to automate your podcast listening experience and you're going to get philosophical rambles in your pocket each and every week. You'll also have access to 190 previous podcast rambles and counting uh, when and if more become available. And uh, that's all going to come to you at the big old price of zero dollars. So please enjoy at comingupnext.com.au. All right, shall we do it? What is going on, my friends? out there in the podcast universe. Uh, this is Alistair Marks. This is my show. Thanks for tuning in. It's coming up next, the podcast, and Guy Pierce joins me on the show today. It is a great day when Guy Pierce is on your podcast or show or just generally on your in your world. Um, but before we get to that interview, um, it's a bit of a strange moment uh, recording this introduction. I've stopped and started a bunch of times, not really sure what to say. There's 190 episodes behind us. There's one right in front of us. Um, But I'm not sure what's beyond that right now at this juncture. Um, If you missed last week's episode, first of all, huge uh, thanks to my guest Adam Megiddo, who is uh, one of the creators of Showstopper, the improvised musical, which is the first improvised show to ever win an olivier award and i think the only show to date um, he's just an incredible person to speak to about theater and about improvisation particularly here in the united kingdom he recently brought uh, and got up peter pan goes wrong in uh, in new zealand and australia so coming up next.com.au for that episode and for all the uh, previous 189 episodes i mean i say 189 or 190 episodes, which it is, if you look at episodically week by week. Um, but, I mean, there's a few repeats in there, there's a few replays and a few clip shows. So, you know, if you've got a spare, like, uh, I don't know, probably call it an even 200 hours, some episodes are 30 minutes, some episodes go for almost two hours, you could probably get through I mean, but that's a lot of me talking. It's a lot of me rambling, more to the point. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the show last week, I, uh, I announced that we were going to be putting a pin in coming up next for, for a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure how long. It just feels like this incarnation of coming up next has um, has, has come to an end. So I'm not sure what the future holds, but I'm very excited to find out. And I feel like the perfect way to round out 191 episodes of Silliness is with uh, one of my all-time favorite actors. Um, I mean, when I was growing up and studying acting, this was a guy who I looked at and I thought, I would love to emulate or do the work, sort of work that he was doing um, now as a filmmaker to have someone like him to collaborate with, to work with. Uh, his films are um, iconic, to say the least. Um, Priscilla, LA Confidential, Memento, The Hurt Locker. Um, so it was just an absolute privilege and a joy to to welcome Guy... Onto the show, Guy Pierce um, Onto Coming Up Next. And don't forget, you can find uh, the entire back catalogue of Coming Up Next rambles at comingupnext.com.au. It's on Stitcher, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes. Uh, if you pull out your mobile phone, if you have uh, an Apple device, uh, open your podcast app, just search for Coming Up Next. If you've got an Android, download Stitcher, search for Coming Up Next. It's, uh, it's available everywhere. You can find them all. So, as we close this chapter and uh, we move into the next part of uh, of the coming up next podcast world, whatever that may be, please enjoy episode one hundred and ninety one coming up next with Guy Pearce. Um, I think Mum was uh, very was taken back. To ta- taken back by the way that yeah, that they they kind of just changed the space and. I mean, I can't pretend to imagine what it must be like for a parent. I mean, you're a parent now, so I'm I guess a parent now,
1: but I'm not a parent of a, someone with a
0: disability. But yeah, no, I've spent my life
1: going, what is it like for mum? You know, and my dad died when, he, when we were all young, you yeah. know, when, when Tracy was only 10 and I was eight. So, you know, he, he experienced 10 years of life with Tracy, but my mum obviously spent her whole life um, with my sister. But yeah, that kind of commitment and that kind of, you, you know, it's, 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 there's something, I don't want to say unnatural, because it's completely natural, but at the same time, as a parent, you know, there's, there's a sort of a natural order of things. You, you, you breastfeed your child, you teach your child to sort of, you know, grow and, and you look after it until it can go out into the world and then be on its own.
0: Mm. But
1: obviously with somebody with a disability, you can't. You know, you, you get sort of stuck at a certain point and you go, okay, well for the rest of my life or my, you know, I have to do this with my child. So a very different sort of level of parenting, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And I guess also as a sibling, it's a very different experience growing up I'm not sure if if you can relate to this, but I guess uh, reflecting back now in, in my life, I'm like, I, I think that having a sibling with a disability gave me or has given me much more sensitivity or, or empathy that I... Totally. That I just... Could, I don't know. There's, I look back on my childhood and go, wow, I was completely just... I just accepted everything at face value or people for who they were or whatever because right. I have this experience that I don't know any different to.
1: Well, you're sort of... you 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 become attuned to certain things that
0: other people don't necessarily
1: experience, but you also become attuned to how your family and everyone around you is because of your sibling with special needs or a disability or whatever. And that's what Kate Strom talks about in her book. You know, it's that... It's those ways in which... You know, there's a big reason why I'm an actor. And a lot of it is probably likely to do with the fact that it's me kind of going, hello, what about me? Hello, you know. Because when a certain focus is placed on one child, other children pick up on that. And, And it's not just... Your mother's focus on the child. It's everyone who comes to the house going, "Oh, Tracy, how's Tracy?" You know, etc. So children, you know how sensitive children are and how aware they are of, you know, whether somebody's safe or not safe, etc. So, and funnily enough, I was just talking to the cab driver (laughs) about this because he was talking about his nephew who's got who's autistic and the effect that 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 little boys had on that family, and he helps him do boxing training and all that stuff. And I was talking about my sister. And I said, I think, yes, you know, you learn compassion, you learn to sort of look at the world differently, I suppose, but you don't know any different, as you say, because you're just brought up in that environment. And clearly there are other people who don't have siblings with disabilities who can be brought up compassionately as well and can learn to be sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. But I think one of the things... I mean, one of the things I feel like I face all the time is this whole notion of being recognised or... Famous, or whatever the term is you want to use, and all of it makes me cringe. I can't even stand saying the word famous. You know, I mean, it's a reality. Well, it is, but it's an entertainment. It is, but for me, my reality is that the world is completely unbalanced, and there are people like my sister who can barely sort of, you know, um, get to do what she wants to do in her life because she has to get permission from people, and she, ha- you know, everything has to sort of be done for her, and she, she. I mean, strangely, ironically, I suppose, my sister walks around Geelong, the town in Geelong, we'll walk past shops and, you know, and, and, and I'll be there with her, trying to keep a bit of a low profile, as I often try to, and everyone in every second shop's going, G'day Trace, how you going Trace, what's going on Trace? I'm like, she's a bigger, she's a bigger name than I am here, this is hilarious, you know what I mean? So there's a really strange thing going on, Yeah, where I'm, uh, you know, on some level, I'm, I'm kind of going, my poor sister hasn't. Ha- hasn't been able to have the normal life that the rest of us have had. Not only that, but I've had this ridiculously super-focused life where people sort of come to me all the time and go, oh, my God, it's you, famous, oh, my God, all that sort of silly shit. But I'm always having to sort of bat away because I'm aware of my sister and how unbalanced the world is. Yeah. So had I not had Tracy as a sister, I might have gotten carried away with my
0: ego and gone, <laughs> yes, I'm incredible. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like some silly actors do yeah. yeah i mean i think that guilt kind of transcends uh success as well like yeah and you've got to be careful with that i've i've certainly felt that like and had discussions with my therapist where i'm like it's not fair that i can come and live in london and yeah do a podcast with you or do whatever go and yeah. work on whatever films or travel to Spain to shoot a documentary you know like whatever it is and then my sister is like it's almost like there's that yin and yang kind of yeah. feeling like couldn't we just be level but then there's a, then then i feel like oh, then there's almost a responsibility that gets attached to the guilt where it's like no but now i have to make the most of that yes. because you know i don't want Well
1: to and look i think it's the challenge i think just because you're challenged by something shouldn't mean that it stifles you. It mm-hmm. shouldn't mean that you then kill yourself over it, or not literally, but that you that you, you know, that you do stifle your freedom in the world and your creativity in the world. But just be conscious. Yeah. Just be loving and supportive and kind of conscientious and um, aware of what you have because somebody this close to you, as well as millions of other people in the world who you don't know. Don't get those opportunities. But guilt's a tricky one. You know, it's in, in a way, it's about sort of looking at the guilt and going, okay, guilt, I'm actually going to turn you into a wonderful gift. I'm going to turn you into the thing that actually makes me look at the world a whole lot better rather than going, I'm crippled by this guilt, you bastard. Get away from me. Stop. Leave me alone, guilt. This is awful. Stop it. Mm. You know, So in a way, why can't you continue on as you clearly are and you can continue on being creative and explore and travel and enjoy the you know the wonderful opportunities that you get but just be conscious of them mm. you know just because you've been conscious of them not you but any of us doesn't mean you you become an egomaniac and you yeah. you know and we see the egomaniacs out there and you go Ugh, you know idiot <laughs> so <laughs> or you try and be compassionate and go oh
0: well they don't know any better that's okay you know it's a, tortured child inside there somewhere. Yeah. But the
1: funny thing, you know, it's interesting you talk about projection before because I project onto my sister all the time. I project, I'll sort of talk about my poor sister doesn't get to do this, my poor sister doesn't get to do that. But, you know, she might spend half a morning at the Geelong show and be more excited about that than I'll spend on the last three films that I've been on. Yeah. Who am I to actually judge whether my sister's poor
0: or not? So I've also got to be really careful with my own projections. Um, Yeah, I think it's like I was saying about my sister before to you, that she kind of, she oscillates between joy and sadness mm -hmm. in varying degrees. And there's, there's often been a part of me that thinks she is capable of a much pure sense of joy or excitement or happiness than I am because she doesn't have... At least uh in the same kind of manner, I guess those the kind of anxieties or stresses mm-hmm. that you get from having a fucking Facebook account and a Twitter yeah, account yeah. and an Instagram account that and you like, complicate your life you complicate with. your life with. yeah there's something there's some kind of simplicity and innocence I think that's uh retained maybe um, I think you're right, yeah, I think you're right, I do think that
1: you know. I, I think it's certainly worth exploring that idea because, because, again, who are we to sort of project onto somebody who can't necessarily communicate to us how they feel about things? I mean, I'll ask my sister all the time how she feels about stuff, heavy stuff. Like, how do you feel about the fact that Dad died all those years ago? And the funny thing is, my sister now has these pat answers that, <laughs> just to bat me away. You yeah. know what I mean? H- how do you feel about that? About t- Oh, sad. And I know she couldn't. <laughs> at, at this point in time, it's not what she wants to talk about. Yeah. She wants to talk about the cats and the footy. Yeah, yeah, You know what I mean? So Gary Ablett returning. Yeah, that's right. And so good on her. Why should, why should she go down the road that I want to sort of set as far as what the conversation's going to be about? Yeah, it's interesting. Because you do spend your time, I spend my time sort of trying to analyse her as well and, you know, understand sort of how happy or upset she is or, or, or what her feelings are about something. But as I say, clearly... Me having a child is, you know, she's she's more excited than anybody, which yeah. which really, you know, makes makes having him even more fulfilling, really.
0: Yeah. Do you remember when you you became aware that there was a difference in your family dynamic? Was there like was there a particular point in your life that you can remember that happening than other families than other families? Yeah. I
1: don't know if there was a particular point to be honest, but I was very aware when I was young of being protective of my sister because she got teased a lot so I I, and I still carry you know I still have a very kind of not necessarily just about her but in myself if I I feel anybody teasing somebody else or whatever I want to smack their teeth you know what I mean I really I feel that fire come up very quickly which of course I have to you know watch Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't note to self um, don't hit anybody (laughs) (laughs) but, but I know that it can't, well, I know that it comes from there. You know, I know that it comes from being really protective of her and, and I don't know how old I was, you know, I mean, I, I, she's two years older than me. So, you know, when I was five, she was seven and dad died when I was eight and Tracy was 10. And clearly that was a tumultuous time for us. And, and, you know, I felt the responsibility of helping Mum look after my sister, um, my mum was very clever too. She never said, Look, I need you to I need you to help me look after your sister. She just said, Oh, it's so wonderful that you're so responsible <laughs> Oh, am I? Right, okay. Uh I best be responsible then, you yeah. know. And so I think I just naturally stepped into that sort of role of um, feeling like I needed to help look after her and just being really aware ten steps ahead of who might be in the way and who might actually be trouble for Tracy, you know um but i don 't know that I remember a specific point, but I reckon you know I do reckon probably when I was five, six, seven, eight, I was aware because also I had a lot of embarrassment, you know, a lot of embarrassment and for for a number of years, I did about my sister, which i I feel horribly guilty about and i 've talked to my therapist about for many, many years, you know, but the great thing is you know my wonderful lady that I see at home jane uh, she uh, has said, well, it's perfectly natural for you to feel embarrassed and to feel irritated that you had to have that life. And she said, you've got to actually own that. You've got to actually go through all that sort of stuff. And this is why Kate Strom sent me her book, Siblings, because she saw me on, on a talk show being interviewed saying, yep, all good, all good, all good, all <laughs> good. She went, I think you need to read my book.
0: Yeah. So, so, yeah, learning to flow with the river, like, I guess, internally. Yeah, that's right. Just accept the real feelings that you're
1: having. Go with them, grow from them. You know, don't 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 fight them, don't lie to yourself, you know, because that's never going to be any good for anybody. And yeah. if you have if you have uh sort of not regrets, but if you have any feelings that you've been hard done by because of the family that you're plonked in, you know, then at least acknowledge them, look at them and, you know, and and of course what anything that comes with me feeling like Life was harder for me on some level because I had to help raise a sister with an intellectual disability. Is equally, if not completely overshadowed by what I've gained from growing up with Tracy, you know. Mm. So, and, and, and I always, any time I think of anything like that, I always sort of also say to myself, well, she had to grow up with me too. <laughs> so she might be sitting there going, I didn't want a fucking brother that was on Neighbours. Yeah. or <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so it may be just as irritating for her that we, you know, walk into a shopping centre in Geelong and people recognise me when she's actually the one who wants to be going, hang on a second, <laughs> this is my town. <laughs> or we go to the footy together and, you know. So it's a pretty funny life the pair of us have.
0: Yeah, there's there's this uh, notion that I was introduced to by this pianist named James Rhodes, which was from Beethoven. It's called uh, interiority, and it's I, I, it's the it's kind of like mindfulness, I suppose. It's mm-hmm. The practice of like listening to what's going on inside. Um, and I think got the. Uh, got that's the that's what's going on inside, by the way. Yeah, that's the that's my you can hear <laughs> it. it's my internal. Yeah, if we listen, I can hear it through the, the cans. Yes, oh no, there he is again. The singing mailman (laughs) literally walks around here singing at the top of his lungs while he he delivers mail. Is he any good? I guess you can't really hear him anymore. Not hearing much music. No, no. I was when I when I first started staying here, I woke up one morning and I just heard this person singing at the top of their lungs. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Wow. Um. But yeah, interiority was. I was remind I get just thinking, listening to what you're saying about not resisting the kind of feelings that you're having, regardless of whether they're rational or kind of justifiable or, yeah. you know, kind of, like just accepting that, yeah, there is something, I guess, fundamentally embarrassing about uh, having a sibling. That when you're young, that will behave in a way that's outside of what would be social. Oh, of
1: course, that's right. I mean, all you want, really, on some level, when you're a kid, is to fit in. I mean, strangely, you know, as we know, I'm an actor, and so there, I was also wanting to stand out, mm. but <laughs> but wanting to stand out in the way that I wanted to stand you want out to control the situation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. With a script and a costume and a paying audience and on a stage. <laughs> Don't that's, forget the makeup. Yeah, the makeup. <laughs> that's right. That's how it needs to be. Not out in the street, not in public, not, not, not when I'm not in control of it, you know. And yeah. actually, I have real issues with control, uh, you know, for a lot of my life I've had. So, you know, that's, that's been a test. But, and having now a, a two-year-old, uh, you know, my, my issues about control are also being tested. But at the same time, I feel like I'm old enough now to go, ah, oh, well, if he wants to throw his shitty nappy across the room, <laughs> sure. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? We'll clean it up, you yeah. know, or whatever. He's never actually, he's never
0: actually thrown his shitty nappy. Right. I'd imagine it too, he probably wouldn't have a big throw anyway.
1: He's, uh, he can throw, but uh, I'm just, the nappy's off and, and he's wiped up and it's put over there so he's, you know, it would be silly of me to leave it in his reach. Yeah, right. I reckon. But at some point, something's going to be thrown. He's thrown a few things at me.
0: Now, is that something that you learned He threw to a ball do? at his mother yesterday and he oh, hit really? her head, yeah. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, he's pretty good, he's a pretty good throw.
0: Yeah, okay, Fair enough. <laughs> Was changing nappies something that you've learned to do recently or was it already in your, in your toolkit?
1: No, it wasn't in my toolkit at all. Right. Um, so I had to learn to do that. Um, but I'm, I, was su- I was surprised at actually how, uh, how I managed it and how I sort of, yeah, quite swiftly got on top of it. Um, the smell sometimes can be a little much. Shit. Uh, so you're not always on top of that. And there is always that lovely little surprise. It's like Christmas every morning. You go, what have we got here? <laughs> Whoa, okay. This is all right. You know, and it's, the, it's preparing the wipes. It's getting the wipes out of the packet before you start. So yeah. it's like, good to have a little sneaky look first right. in the nappy and go, this is a big one. Better get a handful out because you can't, while you're trying to hold a pair of legs in the air, you can't always hoist the wipes out of the packet Because also you're aware of his crying and him wanting, you need to hurry the process up and get it done quickly. Yeah. So you've got to get the right amount out of the packet so that you can do a good clean-up job. (laughs) So there's a lot that goes with uh, the cleaning of a nappy. Yeah, it sounds like The cleaning of a bum and, you know, the balls and and the rest of it. The worst is, you know, the worst is if, if he's in a wriggly mood and he doesn't want to, you know, then of course you're in trouble. Then you suddenly you get a bit of poo on your hand, and then you you wipe it on the other hand, and then it's in your hair, get and you the no, mustache going. No, it's going on? Yeah. Or the worst is actually when a couple of hours later you can still smell it, and you go, "Why am I still smelling this? Where did it end up? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it behind my ear? <laughs> that's right. Ah, that's it's not it's not uh, Cadbury
0: chocolate on my lip. Right. That was a bad time to take a sip of water. Sorry, Sorry about that. Uh, and how do you how have you been finding? I guess balancing work and being a dad now.
1: Well, as a as a as a Libran child, I'm balance has been my uh, major focus in life. Right. Uh, so I'm pretty good at balancing stuff. Uh, it's definitely been the most challenging period of my life this last three years. As everyone knows, you know I, I parted ways with my wife at the start of 2015, and and life just got in, more
0: and more interesting from there, from there. Yeah. You guys were together, like, basically we were, your whole life.
1: Well, 20 years we were together and 18 married. Yeah. But, but, but I'd known Kate at school because we went to Geelong College together and I was, you know, madly in love with her, even as a young boy. So, yes, I'd known her and, and will know her and love her forever, to
0: be honest. Was it, was it your first break-up? When you guys did divorce?
1: No, no, no. I'd, I'd been with a girl uh, for seven years before right. I got together with Kate. And I'd also been with a girl for sort of three or four years prior to that. So I'm a serial monogamist. Yeah. Uh, although I have, you know, I have f- f- slipped... Uh, you know, dalliances. Yeah, in my, in my 20s. But it was, you know, my belief was that, that Kate and I were going to be together forever. So it was, it was my first breakup, I think, where... I was really blindsided and, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and so that's, you know, that's, as, as lots of people have experienced in life, that's really can knock you off your
0: feet and. Um, you have that like profound chasm that feels surreal. Unbelievable. You're just like, what. Incredible, yeah. yeah. You wake up every day just feeling, like, I mean, I haven't had something that long that I've broken up from, but yeah, that feeling of like. Well, the weird thing is obviously we're so malleable as people we we
1: adapt so easily and, and we're so desperate to identify to identify ourselves and to kind of solidify who we are you know we we're just sort of balls of clay going am i a good ball of clay am i a good looking ball of clay am i a talented ball of what am i oh this feels good i'm going to hang with these people and become this and i'm going to ha-. and lots of it's subconscious you don't really know what you're doing we are just going through life trying to be better people etc and you partner up with somebody mm. and you merge you know, you merge, you become one in a way. You, you start a dance with somebody and that becomes beautifully synchronized or it doesn't. And if it does become synchronized and you, you spend a lot of time with that person, then when it comes apart, you, you go, whoa, <laughs> hang on a second, someone just chopped my legs off. Yeah. I've got to learn to walk again. And so the, the, the re sort of uh, establishing of yourself your identity that's the thing I think that that's the thing that's scary that's the thing that's sad that's the thing that's sort of discombobulating but it's also the thing once you do start to feel like you can you're actually all right as a human being on your own that is also then really exciting you know and of course I was completely you know eventually completely understanding of why Kate wanted to end things and and Actually, incredibly, i to say I was proud of her. So sort of, that's a bit of a lame or almost condescending thing to say. I'm just, I'm so impressed that mm. <laughs> she did it. Like, good on her. Like, why not? You because know, it takes a lot of courage ah, or bravery now, to. Yeah. If it's not right, then don't stay there. You know, if it's not. So I, I can't fault her for that. It was just my putting my legs back on and my emotion. You know, all that stuff that I had to sort of deal with. You know, so. It it just makes me admire her even more, to be honest. So yeah, it was it was a long time, and you know, um, but then you know, very quickly I was sort of thrust into a new relationship and having a child, and sort of going. <laughs> so in a way, you know, dealing with having a child, dealing with sort of changing nappies, etc., has also been really coloured by dealing with the, the the sort of finality of my relationship with Kate. And that's okay. It's it's all big stuff, and it's um, It's all pretty dramatic, but but I'm also really able to just take a guitar and sit in a room quietly on my own and play, and you know, and that just brings me back to some sort of you know peaceful place. And you know, I'm 51 now, so I'm better at dealing with stuff than perhaps I would have been in my 20s or 30s. So so yeah, how am I managing or balancing it? I I think I think (laughs) all right in this game. I stopped drinking. That was a big right, you know. I really realised, because I I really was drinking heavily in 2015 and that was bad, because as we know, that just amplifies any emotional state, whether it's sort of joy or utter misery. And so I got to a point where I went, yeah, that's got to stop, because I'm not, I'm just not helping myself here. So stopping that was, was helpful. I slipped back in again at the beginning of this year, but sort of slipped back in, sort of experimented for a while. I went, yeah, no, alcohol still does what it did before, so best I stay (laughs) away. Keep that off the table. Well, yeah, and I think think it was good to slip back into it, because it really was... I was really able to, on some level, look at it like an experiment, (laughs) I think, and... And, and kind of go, ah oh, yeah, that's right, yeah, waking up the next morning, yeah, that's pretty horrible and yuck, you know, and I have a child now, so I actually really want to be cognizant and, and, you know, clear for him. And as it is, you know, I took enough drugs in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s that I'm sure I've done some damage that means that I probably can't be as clear with my child <laughs> as, as I might want to be. Synapses aren't <laughs> Yeah, that's clear. right. You know, what's my name, son? Well, uh, oh yeah, sorry. Um, So I don't want to do any more damage to myself now, particularly anyway. Yeah. You know, and that's fine. I, I, you know, I gave it a good whack.
0: Mm. I guess it could, you know, we mentioned before that this this is kind of one of the more sustained periods that you've actually had of spending time with your son. At the moment, yeah. At the moment, yeah. yeah. I mean, that must be quite challenging to go to Australia for six or eight weeks or go to South Africa for however long or Netherlands or wherever it may be to kind of, you know, separate yourself um, for work.
1: Challenging to be away from yeah Monty yeah it is absolutely there there is also a part of me in in getting back to what we were talking about before about being really honest about all of the emotions that come up there is a part of me also that has a little moment of relief where right. I go great I can sleep in I can <laughs> I can write some songs I've got some time to myself you know I can go back to the gym <laughs> you know so there is a part of me that does that too but the heartbreak of not being with him as particularly at this age while he's Learning to speak—I um, mean, he speaks really well now—but missing any of that stuff is really devastating to to to, to not you know to not be uh, with him for. So yeah, it is hard, but you know, thankfully there's FaceTime and Skype and you know all that sort of stuff. And th- th- I just—I do keep wondering how it was for people prior to all of our digital technology where you sort of make a phone call once every three months... Dad's calling. You make a phone call once every three months and it costs a fortune or whatever. Whereas now I can make ten videos a day and send them to him for nothing. <laughs> you know, for me singing silly songs and all that sort of stuff. So at least he's conscious of me constantly. And who knows, in the end he might say, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want videos of your dad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Yeah, it's tricky. But it sort of has to be done, you know. I've got a divorce to pay off. So uh, yeah. So I'll get through that. And then hopefully... And, you know, I I spoke to a couple of friends who said, look, if you're going to miss time with him, as hard as it is to not be around him while he's growing and changing and all this wonderful stuff,
0: better to do it now than when he's five, six, seven, eight. And then blames you for abandoning him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So I'd rather just, you know, do the hard yards now. and, and, And as I say, it's not like I'm away for 12 months. I'll go off for five or six weeks and then and be in contact with him constantly and then come back and spend a month or two or whatever with him. And so it's, you know, but, mm. but you can see the effects a little bit. What, what's interesting is when somebody comes to their house, in fact Carice's, um auntie and uncle have just arrived at the house here in London and they're staying with us for a few days. When somebody comes to the house and arrives at the house, his first thought is, oh, well, you're leaving then. Because quite often if a nanny comes, that means one of us leaves. Or if Carissa's parents come, that means one of us might leave. So he's got it in his head that at any point we might go and maybe this person coming, arriving, is the trigger for that. So, so we can see the effects of it, you know. So that's heartbreaking. On yeah. some level that's more heartbreaking. So he's a bit easier when you're, when you're gone than watching him think about the thought of you going. And he's sensitive, he's a pretty sensitive kid. I think. He's got super good hearing. I mean, I've got super, super hearing, and so does Caris. So we have to assume he's is pretty... Super, super duper. Highly, highly tuned. Yeah. He'll have shit eyesight, because mine's terrible and Carice is not great. <laughs> but we think his hearing's pretty good.
0: Do you feel like these life circumstances that you have the divorce to pay off and a two-year-old son... Have has have these affected or informed the kind of work that you're doing now, or do you still feel like you're making the same decisions that you would have ten, twenty years ago?
1: No, no, no. My decisions for work changes change all the time anyway. So I mean to give you an example, uh, in two thousand seven I did four really heavy movies. You know, we did um, we did Winged Creatures, which I think ended up being called Fractured or something. And prior to that, I'd done uh, How to Change in Nine Weeks, which I think ended up being called The Perfect Victim, or I Am You, I can't remember what it ended up being called. <laughs> then I did um, The Hurt Locker, and then I did Traitor. So I did a movie about a girl who murders another girl, uh, a shooting in a cafe, um, a bomb expert in, in, in Afghanistan or you know in the Middle East, and then uh, a story about terrorism. And then I got a call from Adam Shankman to say, um, hey, we're doing this big goofy comedy with Adam Sandler. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Sweet relief. Yes thank, you. yes, thank you. Whereas I may not have chosen to do bedtime stories had I not done all that stuff. So my, my, my choices and my, my feelings about work do change all the time. 20 years ago, I never really would have done any Marvel stuff or any superhero stuff because I, I felt I was trying to prove myself on some sort of level, I think. And then eventually I sort of softened with all of that and went, no, it'd be great fun actually to play something like, you know, Aldrich Killian that I did in Iron Man 3. Are my choices affected at the moment because I'm having to work more than I want to? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm choosing stuff that, well, particularly because at the moment I'd really rather not work. I'd really rather just take two years off and not do anything at all and just be with Monty. But obviously I can't do that, I can't afford to do that. So out of the, you know, say 10 things that I may get offered in a, in a you know, six month period or whatever, um, where I might just choose one or two of them because they're the two best, they're the two that really feel special and interesting and unique and, you know, like, wow, this is oof, great. I'll also choose probably three or four others that, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you know, I can do something with that. That's kind of interesting. Who knows if it's going to work? Um, Because also, and this is actually an interesting sort of experience or experiment anyway, I've chosen things in the past that I thought, oh, wow, this is fantastic. This is so interesting. This is unique. This is unusual. What an incredible character. And then the film ends up being a bit flat anyway. So on some level, I can't choose work. I can only really choose work because of my Im- initial emotional response to it. And that en- emotional response varies. You know, there's, there's the 10 out of 10 and there's the 5 out of 10. And, you know, if you need to work more, then you choose the stuff that also feels like a 6 and a 7 and an 8 out of 10. How they're then made how successful they are how they're perceived how whether they work or not it's completely out of your hands anyway so I don't really choose work for how they're going to end up in the future I, I choose stuff I choose stuff really anyway only if I believe I can do something with that character so I may find it sort of an interesting character in a story that I feel like I might have seen before but yeah okay it's in a different setting or whatever and in the past I might have gone nah, no I won't do that you know Whereas now I might go, no, it's okay because it it still could be interesting. There could be interesting stuff about it, and and of course there are so many elements. What's the director like? Where are we shooting? You know, what what's the time frame that they're shooting it in? If we got the time to actually make this sort of more interesting, all those questions exist anyway. But I'm probably having to say yes a little bit more than I might have in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah. What were your kind of uh, I guess markers of what was a kind of 10 out of 10 role when you were like 18 or 21 just finishing up on Home and Away and Neighbours versus what might be a 10 out of 10 role these days?
1: You mean 10 out of 10 things
0: back then that I then went and did? Yeah, well, well I guess what was the scale back then for, for, for what you wanted to do versus what's the scale now?
1: Well, I'm not really sure because um, I had much less opportunity back then as well. You know, I mean, Priscilla came along me, And I really, really, I mean, that was just, I mean, and that was, you know, four years after I finished Neighbours. So I finished Neighbours at the end of 89 and we did Priscilla in September of 93. And of course, when I read that, I was like, this is like a 20 out of 10. This is just brilliant. This is just so fantastic because it just feels irreverent. I think deep down also there was a part of me that, you know, I wasn't trying to break away from Neighbours. I wasn't actively looking for something. That's the other thing. I don't actively look for things because I feel like you're never going to find them. I just think, I just read stuff and go, ooh, like you read a book and you have no idea really. I mean, I know you can go into a bookstore and go, I feel like reading a murder mystery that's set <laughs> in the 40s and da, 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 bang, and you pick it off the shelf. You can't do that with scripts, you know. I can't. Um, I mean, you can, I'm sure, if you're you know, Brad Pitt. But you just read everything that sort of comes your way and you just you, you, you hang on to the thing that really moves you. And things like The Proposition or Priscilla, um, obviously Memento, you know, back then, they were the real, they, you know, they were things that just went, oh. Where you actually get scared, you have a moment of going, oh, I better do something about this because everyone's, surely everyone's going to want to do this. You know, thankfully Brad passed on Memento. Yeah. You know, I don't know whether he was off at Priscilla, but... Um, <laughs> he was off at the Hugo Weaving I part. have a feeling he may not have taken it up. So... Yeah, and
0: and what were you doing? Sorry, if, uh, if you don't mind my asking, in those kind of intervening years between *Neighbors* and, and then and,
1: uh, <coughs> well, I, I did so um, I did a lot of theatre in. So I finished *Neighbors* at the end of '89, then I came here and did another panto. Oh no, this was the first panto I did at the end of '89, up in Preston in in uh, in the northwest, and then then I actually lived in London for about a year, you know, and and and. Was yeah, that because you wanted to sort of get a,
0: get out of Australia or you wanted
1: no, to? No, I just, well, I came over here on the Panto and had a bunch of friends that were living here out in the east in Bow and Bethnal Green. And so I just ended up sort of hanging about with them and just kind of going, okay, well, I'm just hanging about with my mates, you know. I wasn't even really looking for work or I sort of was, I was, you know, I sort of got an agent here as well, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do, really. You know, I just, I just sort of was seeing what opportunities were around and, and then in sort of 91, 92, n- into 93, I ended up doing a bit of theatre at home. I did, I did Home and Away just for like six weeks in 91, I think. And then 92, or n- second half of 91, 92 and into 93, I did, I did Greece for 12 months in Australia. So we did a production of Greece from like, I, funnily enough, I never did Melbourne. I did we just Sydney and Queensland and Adelaide. And, and I did Midsummer Night's Dream for, uh, for Glenn Elston's group. And I did, I had Hamlet for Melbourne Theatre Company. I don't know which order I did those in. but um, And then Man from Snowy River came along in, at the start of 93. So I then did that for four years. Got myself back onto another four-year television show. <laughs> and, and somewhere there in early 93, Priscilla came along. And I went, ooh, this is what I really want to do. you know. So I managed to do Priscilla and Snowy River at the same time. So year 93, 94, 95, 96 was the man from Snowy River, and also 96 I got LA Confidential. So when we took Priscilla to America in 94, for the publicity, etc., my agent in Australia said, well, you should meet some agents in LA, and, and I was like, ah, and I was a bit sort of angry and grumpy in those days. So oh, said, I don't want to meet agents, I'm not going to come and work here. I don't think I really had much faith in myself, to be honest. I... I didn't really know, I was really just displaced a little bit because I was sort of carrying that Neighbours thing, really recognised for that, but not really feel like feeling like I was a substantial
0: actor. It's like in a fraud kind of fraudulent complex. Well,
1: yeah, you know, there, there's that, what we talked about before about fame and feeling like the world's sort of out of whack. You know, here I was recognised by everybody in Australia because I'd, I'd been on Neighbours, but at the same time I didn't feel fulfilled as a legitimate actor. You know, I didn't go to drama school. Um, I got shit from other actors. You know, when I did all that theatre, lots of those other actors were like, ugh, how could you have done Neighbours? Ugh. Because in those days, television, you know, was really frowned on. It's not like, you know, the Netflixes of, you know, 2018. So, or even 2008, you know. um, As we know, television's just really improved out of sight in this last 10 or 15 years. And, you know, you've got Meryl Streep and... Michelle Pfeiffer and Glenn Close and all these wonderful actors working in television now. Whereas in those days, it was particularly on a soap. So I kind of had to get my head around all that as well. And there I was back on another television show. But it was shot on film and it was sort of for America. And so it was felt a bit different. It wasn't really soapy, soapy. And of course, then I got Priscilla. I was lucky enough to get that. And, and then, as I say, when I, when I sort of came to the States, I went, well, I'll see a few agents and... I'd do some auditions and so in 95 popped over to LA a couple of times and and did a few auditions and landed LA Confidential. And then I sort of, once I did that and I started to work in America a bit, then I started to feel like, okay, I'm kind of doing this on my own now. I wasn't really having these conversations with myself, but if I look back at it...
0: and sit yourself down in the mirror. Yeah. Now listen, guy, guy. you've, you've listen. got it now. <laughs> yeah.
1: no, I never really, but but if I do look back at my own insecurity and confidence at the time, I think that, you know. I mean, even even through the late nineties, I was because I ended up taking like a year or two off in sort of two thousand one, two thousand two, because I was, I, as much as I started working in the states, I also I also immediately had a reaction to the whole thing of well if you get your name out there then you'll work more and so again it was more about it was all about fame again everything seemed to be about fame and i just wanted to feel like i was a legitimate actor to myself not to anyone else but just to myself and it really wasn't until after i'd had that break and then in 2004 and five and six i was doing factory girl and the proposition and death defying acts and then in 2007 trader and then i was able to have a bit more fun and go and do an adam sandler film and you know, 2009, 2010, do some good legitimate work like Animal Kingdom and get back and do some theatre in Australia and do, you know, um, Poor Boy in 2009. And then 2010, 11 and 12 were great because I got to do Lawless and Prometheus. And, you know, I really then had relaxed a lot more about it. And I really then felt like, I believe myself as an actor. I believe that I can go and do that. When someone comes and asks me to do a job, sure, they're asking me because I've got a bit of a name and that's going to help with the financing, etc., whatever, whatever. But also I, I bring with that equally in myself, my belief is that I can actually do this because I can do it. It's not just the fame. I can laugh at now at the silly fame stuff. So that, sort of, <laughs> you know, that was a bit of a sort of trajectory of where I was in all of it. And, and I think that year or two that I took off in 2002, two three was great because I then was able to step away from it and look at it from the point of view as a, of a 30-odd-year-old rather than an 8-year-old where I'd started doing theatre and go, is this legitimate? Is it valid? Have I got something to offer here? So I was able to just look at it a bit differently rather than just as a kid who was taking whatever opportunities came along and sort of going with the wind so yeah just growing up
0: i've had this thought recently that my 20s or at least the the latter part of my 20s i spent trying to uh create trying to understand my own behavior and trying to create like awareness about and not not awareness of the way that i was behaving but trying to remove certain behaviors or certain aspects of Uh, who I was through understanding the way that I'd built myself or shaped myself. Mm. And now that I've kind of got into my 30s, I'm like, well, actually, no, maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's just about having almost like being an observer at times so that you Mm -hmm. can understand or have the awareness. And then you can make conscious choices about what you're trying to do or what you're trying to achieve based on that. Well, and I
1: think also, it's a good point, because I think also that you, you, as, a, as I said before, we, we spend our time sort of trying to identify ourselves, trying to create an identity for ourselves, and there's certain really strong instinctual impulses to latch onto this and that, and you know, and, and, and to build something. And then, as you point out, that you then start to try and strip some of that stuff away, which is valuable as well. It's good to kind of open the box and look at what's working inside and what isn't, et cetera. But I think your perspective on what's working and what isn't. And actually, maybe I won't throw that away. Maybe that's worth keeping because that's a bit of a driver for me. But it doesn't have to be the thing that identifies me. I get that it's there and it's actually always going to be there. It's always going to be there as a challenge, but it doesn't have to be all I am, you know. So I I think that's what I feel like I've gotten better at over the years too, sort of going, well, actually, who I am can be really who I create myself to be, which, which is sort of what we're talking about anyway. But I think your point is really good about standing back and actually looking sort of from the outside and, and, and going, there's a sort of a calm in just doing that rather than being in the middle of it. It's like the old man sort of standing in a room watching a, a little kid on the floor kind of play with his toys and smash his toys and get upset about it and the old man's just calmly just watching him from the corner of the room going, yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll grow out of that, you know. And it's funny, you know, even the Dalai Lama says you've got to fake it till you make it. So, you know, there is a there is a part of it. And, and strangely, well not strangely, but I think, you know, based on what I said before about trying to see the validity in acting. Yes, there is a job that is acting, and yes, there is the byproduct of that and the the, the ramifications of it and some of that's fame and success and all that adulation or whatever, or there's failure as well, and it's horrible. But why does acting exist? Why do we have the ability, why do I have the ability right now to act like somebody else in front of you if I want to? Why does that even exist? I think it exists because we are malleable creatures and we have the ability to actually become better versions of ourselves. And surely, you know, trying something and actually going, I'm going to try to be a nice person today and actually see how that pans out You try it and you do it, and you go, Oh, that felt good. I helped somebody, and that was really good. And if I do that again, and I do that again, and I do that again, we're just going to become nice people. Because if that feels genuine and it feels honest, that's how malleable we are. And that's, and so, like, if you talk to a therapist about behaviors and, you know, why you feel. Bitter and angry about this, that, and the other, they'll say, "Well, you never felt like that when you were a baby, when you were a kid. Shit happened to you in life, and you just got squished into that identity of being that miserable bastard." And unless there's chemicals at play, and you, you know, there's um, uh, you know any sort of disorder in there or whatever, but behaviour is so shaped, and that we have the ability to shape it back again. I think, and that's where acting, the ability to act, the positive side of acting, I think, exists for that reason, because it's, it's us being able to go, no, I'm actually gonna try and be a better person today. And if you believe that, then great. The negative side of it is lying. You know, we've all got the ability to lie. Did you do such and such? No, I didn't do that. Yeah, okay, well, you just convinced that person that you didn't do that, but the fact is, you did do that thing, so you just lied about it to escape something. Go home and never think about that lie that you just told. And maybe next time you could go, Yeah, I did do it. I'm sorry. You know, why can't that be the use of acting where you actually cultivate something positive out of it instead of just, you know, landing on the lie? And I remember doing an interview years ago. I was doing a bunch of interviews. We were doing a whole, like, one of those press days where you talk to 40 journalists one after another for LA Confidential. And all of a sudden, one journal- journalist in the middle of it said to me, I had headphones on and I was talking to different states all around America. And suddenly out of the blue, this, this one guy just said to me, yeah, you're an actor, okay, so, so basically you're just a liar. And I went, uh, what? No, hang on, what? But, uh, no, I'm an actor. I'm a, you know, and it really, I carried that around with me for a long time. Yeah. And I'd been a liar as a kid. I'd lied a lot. You know, I was really good at it, that's the thing. I realised I was really good at lying. And I didn't want to be a liar anymore, you know. I don't, well, I don't want to be a liar. No one wants to be a liar. But the sad thing is we, we, we can do it really well, we, you know. We, and, we, and, we, and we kind of create an identity for ourselves in our life by lying sometimes. The beauty for me is I get to lie, if you want to use that word, on screen as a job, but everyone who goes to the cinema and pays their ticket, they don't really think I'm a cop in LA. They know that I'm an actor playing <laughs> a cop, so I'm not really lying. Yeah. <laughs> the trick, we're all in this together, you know. Yeah. That's different to lying. So it was really nice actually to spend that time away from it and go, what's the value of this? Is it valid? Why does acting exist in all of us? And what can I do with it? What's the what's what's the good that come out it that can come out of this? Not just for the audience who gets to watch it but for me you know for me
0: personally when you were doing neighbors was there a moment where you realized that shit was just changing for you like you know, like with being noticed or becoming famous instantly yeah it's instantly. Okay. <laughs> yeah totally because
1: i started the show on december the 2nd 1985 i'm a bit funny with numbers <laughs> <laughs> i could pretty much tell at you two o'clock, in the at two o'clock in the afternoon no i can pretty much tell you the date that I started and finished every job that I've done. So, and then it didn't go to air until the following year because they'd finished on Channel 7, they'd axed the show in like the August or September or something of 85, and then Channel 10 picked it up, and then I got cast, and I started on the first episode back at Channel 10. And then it went to air in the January sometime. And, and you were 18. Yeah, i just turned 18 in the October. i just finished my HSC and i just moved to Melbourne from Geelong and I started on a television show. Yeah, right. Like, whoa, okay. And then it went to air and I reckon, I mean, I can't tell you the exact date about this, but I reckon uh, at some point in the first half of that year, I went, oi, because you just go to a shopping centre and suddenly, you know, a group of 20 schoolgirls go, oh my God, there's Mike from Neighbours. And you go, whoa, what's happening? You know, it's like all of a sudden the police are suddenly chasing you or, you know, I mean, they weren't, but I just mean as, a, as an example that suddenly there's an unnatural focus on you. And I just went, whoa, and I sort of went really into a shell, you know, and I had to work out how to manage that. And, you know, I think I managed it okay. I'm a pretty good, I'm pretty good at being a hermit,
0: but it was tricky. It was tricky. Was it all. a genie that you wanted to put back in the bottle?
1: Yeah, to a degree. But at the same time, you know, my ego was also, you know, excited by it. I I can't deny that. But I hated it at the same time. You know, I I loved the feeling like, oh, wow, this sort of feels powerful. But I had no idea what I wanted to do with that power. I had no idea how to manage it or what I wanted to do with it. I just, I would just sit at home on my own and go, God, isn't that amazing? I don't want to go outside. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it was really conflicted. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was many situations that were kind of great, you know, where you'd get tickets to the David Bowie concert because of it. And then other situations were horrible, where guys would want to punch the shit out of you in a shopping centre
0: because their girlfriend looked at you. And I guess it sort of built up over, what, that sort of 12-year period until you decided to take a break.
1: Yeah, and it sort of changed. Like, once I'd left the show... Like, funnily enough, for coming here in London for years, I couldn't, I hated it. I hated, hated it, you know, because they were two years behind anyway, and the show was monstrous here. And even 10 years after I left the show, I'd come here and people would still yell at me in the street. Like, not yell at me, but like, come oh my God, it's Mike from Naples. No-. Also, because you're the foreigner <laughs> in a foreign land, what are you even doing here? Yeah. And you, you know, you should be at Ramsey Street. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whereas now, and actually, you know, walking around London now, I go, oh, this is great no one recognises me, this is fantastic. Or maybe the occasional person who's my age might go, are hey, you, you're not, no, okay, you know, and I go, <laughs> yeah, no, and I keep walking. But it's that mad teenage Beatlemania, that's a horrendous, like that's really difficult. I find it just makes me super anxious, super self-conscious, I sort of trip over and I can't, I can't even think straight, you know, I just find it really... It's lovely if you walk down the street and someone comes up to you and says, hey, I saw that movie and your performance was great, if it, you know, and you go, oh, well, thanks, and you have a great conversation. You might talk about the film, you know. So that feels more balanced. But the early days stuff was just nuts. And as I, funnily enough, I saw Jason. So Jason Donovan and I are great mates still, you know, and of course I'm here now in London for a while, and so I'm catching up with him quite a bit, you know. We're talking about kids and schools and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but we're also talking about the good old days as well, you know, when we hosted Countdown and funny things like that, you know. So we laugh about it. It's great. It's great. What's great is to laugh about that stuff with someone who experienced it and not just someone who experienced it, but... And Kylie's a really good mate too. Those guys, it was just tenfold for them. Like it was nuts, you know, like really, really, really mega. So, you know, but they have stronger constitutions than I obviously did. So it was a really weird time. But you just sort of just went through it, you know. You just kind of went through it and you learnt to be evasive and, you know, not go to pubs and not go to this, not just go, okay, well, I can't do that. I, I'm going to go, I need to go to the shops and do something. Oh, shit, it's 3.30. The kids are going to be coming out from school. not go tomorrow. Yeah, right. Can't come out, you know, can't walk down a street and suddenly there's a group of
0: school kids. It's mad. That is mad. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Totally mad.
0: I can't. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess there's a price that you pay for success in show business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the. And look, I didn't go off the rails. You know, I saved that for for <laughs> <the> 2015. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always a bit behind the eight ball. So you know, I I I thankfully kept my head. You know, was was analytical enough to actually kind of assess the situation, keep working. I was disciplined, responsible, as my mother pointed out when I was eight. Responsible enough to keep working. I wanted to keep going with this, so just keep going. And eventually, I, it's not like I was even that conscious, I suppose, of what it might hold, what the future might hold, but I just, I just was driven to sort of do the thing that I wanted to do and that was just keep acting, you know, not get too stymied by the fame stuff. I was, I was lucky. I sort of came out the other
0: side all right, I think. How how do you feel as though you did come out of that fog in the early 2000s?
1: Well, I was still smoking a bit of pot, so the pot helped. But also, (laughs) it it (laughs) it became the the enemy (laughs) as well. Well, funnily enough, Nick, I mean I've told this story before so people know it, but uh, Nick Cave called, not many people can say that. Yeah, as he does. As he does. But I was at home with a mate of mine, we were just stoned off off our boxes, and uh, and I'd said to my agents, look, I'm, I need to take some time off. I'm not going to read anything. I'm not going to, you know, and scripts would still turn up and I'd literally just sort of put them over in the corner, you know, and I'm not even going to look at them. And then Nick called before I knew him and left this message. I was at home with this friend of mine, Andrew, and, and I, was, I never answered the phone. I was just listening to the answer machine and then pick it up or whatever. Uh, Hi, guy, It's Nick Cave calling. Um, listen, there's a script uh, that I've written that we've sent you... Uh, uh, they seem to think that if I call you, uh, that might... I know you're not reading things at the moment. <laughs> they, they tell me that if I call you, maybe you'll take a look at it. I'd love you to have a look at it. Uh, some words to that effect, you know. And I'm there with my mate, you know, with my red eyes and, you know, with a big spliff in my hands going, Oh, my God, it's Nick Cave. <laughs> Jesus, quick, <laughs> go to the pile of scripts. <laughs> find this thing called The Proposition, you know. Now, we shot the film in October of 2004, but like a year before we I had decided and we talked about actually doing it, they then they then got into a bit of, not trouble, but trying to raise the money and it all got a bit complicated so it then held the whole thing off for quite some time. So sometime in second half of 2003 I knew I was going to do the proposition and I think in early 2004 I came to England and saw John Hillcote again. I'd seen him uh, prior to that and I went down and saw Nick in Brighton and talked about it some more, etc. But that initial call and that initial sort of wake-up to that was the, the the catalyst that got me back into it again, you know. Funnily enough, after I did the proposition, well, actually, even that's right, because even in 2004, as I say, we didn't shoot it until later in the year, so I kind of got to have the rest of the time off that I was going to have, even though I had decided, you know, to, to, to take a lot of time off. And did that, and then at the start of 2005, did First Snow, and then I did Factory Girl, and then sort of the 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 wheels got going again. But but with a very different attitude, I felt very different about it. I still struggled with stuff, um, you know, but but I kind of came out of it. And I stopped smoking in 2005 and, you know, I really just, just felt better. I was able to laugh about the silliness of the industry and, you know, I knew I had to take time off in between jobs. Because that's one of the things that you don't realise. As an actor... Uh, you're looking for work, you're not finding work, so you're out of work. There's lots of periods where you're out of work. You don't think there's any value to that at all until you start working back to back to back to back and then you're exhausted and you've just become vacuous and you've got nothing to give and you wonder why you're you're really grumpy. You go, oh, right, yeah, that time in between is really valuable. You recharge and, yeah, okay, that whole thing that people say, you've got to make hay while the sun shines, sure, but... You know, you've got to have something to give. So those people might have weekends. Yeah, well, that's right. (laughs) So, and of course, when you work intensely on a film, it's intense, and you've got to give yourself a month or two in between. I find, you know. So, funnily enough, at the moment, you know, I'm 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 back to that again, giving myself time in between jobs, and also because I want to, because I want to be with Monty. But you know, it's I'm very aware. I learnt that lesson, and that you can't really change that. You know, pottering at home, the gardens, cooking, and you know, doing whatever stuff at home, being yourself, just not putting any energy into actually
0: going somewhere else and constructing a character. What was it like, I guess, uh, coming out of the fog into the proposition? Because, I mean, it's not exactly kind of like, it's not something that you can just dial in or phone in. I mean, it's... No, and I've never been interested in dialing stuff in, you know, even if I do something silly and fun.
1: It's still about the commitment. It's still about going there all the way you know but one of the important things for me now and what i've realized i'm able to do is actually keep guy close by whereas in the 90s i just felt like i had to fight him off and keep guy away and just stay not necessarily stay in character all the time because that was too exhausting but like if i if we finished a shot and i'd go back to my chair um, i couldn 't talk to anybody. I just had to sort of put the head in the script i'm, I'm like i 'm surely there 's a scene i 'm supposed to be looking at right now don 't talk to me you know so there was a lot of anxiety about how I worked, and that was exhausting, like, particularly when I was doing memento, for example, you know although that needed it because it was as we know quite the head fuck. but um <laughs> But I just found myself needing to kind of... Like, surely, in order for me to actually successfully play this character, I have to keep the character conscious all the time, right? Surely that's what I need to do. Yes, that's that's what I... You know, I've got this opportunity in America. Just get this right. Otherwise, you'll lose it. Was that fear? Yeah, otherwise, that's right. If Guy slips in there at all, then that's not successfully playing the character. And I still agree with that, but i am now... I just trust the fact that... After cut, you and I can have a chat about the footy or about, you know, the Morlocks or whatever. And then when we get back to doing the scene again, I can bring it back again. Now, if I've got a giant monologue that I'm about to do and it it's quite, there's a lot of stuff in there that I've got to really kind of remember in my voice and my body and in my head then maybe we won't chat about the Morlocks just before that shot. I might go back to my chair and just be quiet to myself. But generally, the majority of the time, I've learnt that it's actually much more beneficial for me to um, to stay relaxed, you know, guys quite present, and trust the fact that I can tap into that character and successfully play it when camera is rolling, you know. I didn't really fully come to terms with that probably until 2009, 10, 11, 12, to be honest, but I, I was trying it out and funnily enough, say for example, with a film like The Proposition, not really a lot of dialogue, You know, not really a lot, so I'm just carrying, so in a way, one of the difficult things about what I've experienced before is playing an American character, having a lot of American dialogue, the reason I don't want Guy around is because Guy's Australian accent is going to get in the way. And so it's just easier for me not to get into a social conversation with somebody and have to keep it's the American act doing that, even though I can do that. Whereas a film like The Proposition, as I say, even though I have an Irish accent, there's not a lot of dialogue. So actually I could be, you know, I could just sort of be quiet. I could still sort of be myself. It, it, most scenes that I was about to do were, were, were just physical things. They weren't vocal. And so probably films like The Proposition... ...was where it began, where I was able to actually, you know, trust myself a bit more. First Snow was different, because in First Snow, which was the first film I did in 2005... I ...had a lot of dialogue, it was really rat a tat tat kind of stuff. So I had to be a little bit careful there. Uh, but I was shooting in America, you know, with Americans... ...so I'm surrounded by American people. I remember going up to Jack Thompson on set once... ...I wasn't in the film, but he was on set... ...and he was in America in Savannah shooting a film... And he didn't know I was there. And I went, snuck up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder and said, G'day mate, how you going? And he went, get away from me with that fucking accent. Jesus Christ. The last thing he wanted to hear while he was playing the, you know, the the mayor of the town or whatever was a fucking Australian accent. And I went, yeah, okay. Yeah, don't do that ever again. Because I wouldn't want to, you know. It's actually hard. It's really hard to shoot a to play a character from one place if you're not surrounded by people from that place or if you've got Australians on set or, you know, it's, it's like trying to hum a tune when there's a different song on the radio. So it's the vocal stuff that's, that, that was the trickiest thing for me and it still is in a way. If you're doing an accent, I can, you can slip off really easily and that's, you know, I just think is sort of, you know, rule number one. If you're mm. going to do an accent,
0: get it right. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's very jarring when you watch a film or TV or, and the person's yeah. accent is off
1: yeah and look some people and i've got a good ear so i know i can do accents well but i still have to work hard at them and i still have to really concentrate and keep it there you know i can sing in tune as well but if i'm not concentrating and there's another song on the radio i'll go off so i've really got to you know and i've worked with actors before who are doing an accent and i see them being dickheads in between scenes and i think you're not helping yourself here you know
0: just
1: just be quiet for a second don't be the bogan australian that you are normally you just just be quiet because i can hear your bogan australian accent coming through in the scenes that you're filming so stop it you know and that's my lesson to myself as well not that i you know act like a dickhead in between scenes but but you can it's an accent is it's a really delicate kind of precarious thing unless you're just the genius you know which only some of us are you know? It's, it's hard. That's ah, amazing. It's difficult. Yeah, but no. I. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, accents are, are tricky. I love doing them, but uh, yeah, you can you can fall off the perch sometimes, <laughs> and you can always fix them later. But it's not the same. Yeah,
0: I mean you've worked with obviously some of the biggest actors of all time, at least uh, in terms of um, film and television, and some of the biggest directors, writers. Um, what are the kind of, I guess, common traits or things that you see from these people uh, or are there common things that you see in terms of work ethic or process or anything um, that keep them working and keep them in the public consciousness?
1: That's a really interesting question, actually. No one's ever asked me that. Um, yes, what is the answer to that? Look, pe- the there's talent and you just can't deny talent there's people are just amazing (laughs) it's incredible and you stand there doing a scene with somebody standing right in front of them and they're acting away in front of you and you're there going oh i've got a line to deliver in a second (laughs) you know so (laughs) people can be really disconcerting because they're so talented they're just great uh and 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 even as as an actor not even as an actor but i myself i'm constantly a fan of people that i'm standing in front of and working you know I worked with Kate Winslet and I worked with Todd Haynes on the same thing, on Mildred Pierce, And Todd is brilliant. He is just fantastic. I think, look, well, it's hard to say because you've got someone like Todd who's really brilliant, really clever, just intuitive. He can hear a line, he can see a line on the page and go, yeah, that works, that doesn't work. So he can fix it. You can then deliver the line and if you don't deliver it properly, he'll go, actually, let's fix it again so it works for you and so, I, you know, and so he's great at that. And he's a lovely human being. That's really important to me. Some people can work and continue to be successful and are brilliant and fantastic, but they're pricks. And that's hard work, but it, that works for them. So there isn't really an answer to, to sort of what works and what doesn't, I suppose. I know that's not specifically what you're asking, but, you know, there, there's also that, just that weird magical thing that some people have where they're just a kind of fantastic mess. You know, their personal lives are a mess... <laughs> But they're just sort of either beautiful or kind of charismatic, or you know, we're talking about actors primarily, I guess. You know, they just have some quality. When the ca- and you're just like, just roll camera, just roll, roll the camera, because anything that they do is going to be so watchable and so fascinating. And then there are those of us who try our hardest, and you know, you just can be dull, or you can fall off the perch, or you can, you know. So there's a whole range of, if you work really, really hard and you're really disciplined, you know, you're great, you'll deliver something really top-notch if you're with a good team of people that work with you and capture it properly. And I mean, I always talk about LA Confidential and people always, um, um, what's the word? Uh, say that I've done a lovely performance and I cannot help but think, and, I, and I, I'm very flattered and I'm, I, I can agree but I'm completely in the hands of Curtis Hansen in that film. He completely got that performance out of me. I had no idea how to do film acting until I worked with him. And so making that film for me was a lesson, in was a masterclass in film acting. And so you've got somebody like him who's not only a great filmmaker but he's a great teacher as well. So if you can work with people who are great teachers, and I might work with a great actor who I just watch them and go... ah, that, that's okay I'm going to step up my game here and that's exciting you know and then there are also the times when I'm working with a young actor who I, I can see he's got this natural talent or or they don't think they do you know uh, or they're a bit they're a bit all over the place or whatever and you go if I just say this one thing to that kid it's going to completely change how they, their day goes and you say that one thing and you see them go oh, thank you oh great you know yeah. not just because you've given them some piece of advice that you might have experienced yourself but that you've taken the time to give them and not to suggest that I'm the right person to be giving people advice, but you know, you just know sometimes where, you know, some young kid needs a bit of guidance. Um, so, So it's actually really nice to sort of change the roles as well a little bit and I'm always conscious of the great people I've worked with. You know, Tommy Lee Jones was one, for example, and I remember doing Rules of Engagement and before we started... I worked. Billy Friedkin was the director. William Friedkin, and I remember saying to him, um, "So with t- Tommy, uh, Tommy Lee, to- Tommy, do I call him Tommy or do I call him Tommy Lee? <laughs> what, what do I?" He said, "Don't call him anything. Just don't go near him." Okay? I went, "Okay, okay." So I'd just keep away from to- you know, because he's renowned for being a sort of grumpy old man, and you know, he's sick of the industry, and he's, you know, all these sort of stories about him of. You know, and fair enough, because you know as we know the industry can be pretty ridiculous, and he's just he's just a man who doesn't suffer fools, and so I just kept out of his way, and he loved that, so he would then come and talk to me so so I got in really well really well with him, and I was able to then sort of talk to him about acting and not not pester him about stuff, but actually just and he's keen to talk about it you know, but to watch someone like him who's just so completely underplayed, you know this whole thing about underplaying and you know i think there's there's great talent that people have naturally and then there's the skillful qualities that people have where they know what works for camera and that i find really fascinating i'm so intrigued by that making that look like you it's not what you're doing is is so incredible to me so you know there've there've been really great people that i've worked with who are great for many different reasons and what keeps people going, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a tough one because socially and culturally we want different things at different times and somebody who's kind of hot for a while kind of just goes out of favour because the choices that they make may be odd or, or people often only work well because they make really interesting good choices and yet they're not the greatest actor in the world but they just happen to make really good interesting choices all the time, you know. So, and in fact that's one of the things, you know, we've got to be careful about at the moment. With what i 'm doing if i 'm choosing more than I normally might I'm aware that part of what has worked for me in my career is that I choose really varied things and unusual things and and I feel to some degree that I'm lucky enough to kind of get away with that i don 't play the same character all the time so i 've got to be careful not to not to ruin this this thing that i've that we've we my, team of agents and I have sort of managed to do relatively well I think which is choose well you know if I start choosing schlock (laughs) then suddenly people are going to go ah you lost us you
0: idiot Mm. you know
1: I'm not a great actor I know I'm not a great actor I know I can I know I can do certain things well and I know I can I'm really interested in going to really different weird and wonderful places but I think a big part of what works for me is choosing characters that I know I can do well. Some actors can just do anything amazingly. But I read things sometimes and go, no, I'm going to fail really badly if I try this. You know, I just, I'd love to be able to do it, but I just can't. I can't. So knowing your limitations, I think, is a good, a good quality.
0: What would you look at, or who would you look at uh, and say they're a great actor, if you don't consider that you, you yourself are one? Oh, Kate Blanchett. Yeah,
1: she's t- she's pretty technical as well. I have to say, Meryl Streep. You know, you you, you I shouldn't say technical. I've got to be careful with that because that sounds derogatory. And it's not. What I mean is, the 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 dance with the camera. And sh- and I don't know Kate at all, so she may completely deny this and say, "I've no concept of the camera. I'm just fully in the character." And she may be great, good on you. It's brilliant, but. I reckon she's better than that. I reckon she's I reckon she's equally as talented as she is conscious. And to me, that's just so intoxicating and, and incredible. Oh, I mean, there's, there's plenty, you know, Gary Oldman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest his soul. Philip Seymour to me was... The, one of the things that I find really interesting about certain actors is their unpredictability. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, even in a sort of a... You know, well, in any role, really. I just had no clue what was going to happen next, what movement he was going to make, what, how he was going to say something, and that's exciting, and that's like life, I guess. You know, so it's when it's when you feel predictable, when someone feels predictable on screen, and you feel it in yourself. <laughs> you go, oh God, I'm just going through the motions here, or I'm trying not to, but I I, I need some help. I got to give me something, give me something that's, you know, so. You know, and, and, and people like Daniel Day. I mean, he's really quite transformative and there's a power and a confidence that he has that's just extraordinary, I think. Edward Norton, I love. Although I've not watched anything of his for a, quite a long time. Oh, Birdman, which was great. Yeah, and sometimes it'll just be Martin Tokas in... Um, I forget the name of the film now. The film that uh, Liam Neeson did about the guy who helped bring down Richard Nixon and it's, the, it's, it's his character name is the name of the film. It's a bit of a sort of a nondescript name, so pardon my, to the listeners for uh, me <laughs> forgetting the name of it. I don't remember either. But Martin's performance in it is just so... I was like, wow, it's just so powerful. Some people just have Anthony Hopkins, you know, Anthony Hopkins in Remains of the Day, and, and I mean, obviously The Elephant Man as well, which is my favourite film of all time. There's just, just this, that ability to kind of know that this little movement that they're doing is actually having such an incredible effect. Oh, I just love it. I love that power that you can have on screen. I love working on stage as well. Absolutely, it's fantastic. But the intimacy, I think, that you can garner on film because the camera can come in here, as we know, and, and, and see a little finger twitch or whatever it happens to be. And then the editing of that, etc you know, is, is so powerful. And that's why, you know, I look at, at um, LA Confidential and as flattering as people are about my performance, I kind of go, yeah, but, <laughs> you know, let's, let's, let's not forget
0: Curtis in all this. Mm. It's the sum total of the, all the parts.
1: Yeah, and just him choosing this moment in my performance and choosing that moment in my performance and holding on this moment and what he said to me before a take and, you know, like, just don't blink here, actually. Right. Just when I hold you here, just don't blink. Okay, sure, all right, I'll not blink then. And then you watch that in the film and go, ah, oh, you know. That kind of held power and, and Well, the stillness, well, like yeah, that. trusting. And I think one of the big issues that most of us actors are faced with is feeling interesting, not feeling interesting. So we bounce around trying to be interesting you know, that's our compulsion and the anxiety all bubbles away and camera's rolling and off we go and, you know, we do. It's this, this, this natural thing. Whereas someone comes in calm and still and you go, oh, what fucking secret have they got? Oh, my God. It's just like, it should just be acting lesson number one, I reckon. Yeah. It's so powerful. And if you if, believe it, you know, you can't just sort of be going, oh, I'm frozen, I'm not moving. Yeah, am I interesting? You know, then it's not going to work. And, you know, there's also natural... There's just natural genetics as well. As as wonderful as Gary Oldman is, that mouth that he has, he's born with a compelling mouth. It's just like, (laughs) you know, Ricky Gervais. I mean, you look at Ricky Gervais, that big, crazy sort of... Not crazy, but that big, hilarious smile and laugh that he has. None of us can do that because we're not
0: genetically built like he is, you know. And I think, to go back to what you're talking about with stillness, I guess kind of link it back to where we started with talking about like interiority or like what's going on inside Mm. all of that stillness and all of that um i guess feeling like or not concerning yourself whether you look interesting but actually what's going on on the inside what's the trusting yeah, yeah and trusting that yeah trusting that that's enough that's
1: right and that's where that's what directors need to do I reckon. I mean, you know, lots of directors get to work with great actors who don't need to be told that, but great actors also sometimes, I think, bounce around and kind of go, am I I giving enough? Am I doing enough? What am I, you know? Demonstrating and showing. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that I really started to say to myself a few years ago now is stop trying to tell the story. The film is telling the story, okay? The film is this big thing that's moving forward with sound and light and energy and editing and kind of choices and just this film is telling the story what's the least amount that I can do that still gets the point across of whatever it is in any moment what's the least amount that I can do because surely the least amount as long as it's enough to get the point across because also projection is the other thing. The audience is sitting there going, I'm projecting everything (laughs) onto this screen right now. (laughs) They don't realise they're doing it, but they are. Take that as an actor. Take that. Just let people project shit onto you. Just be quite still there. And it really frustrates me sometimes when you're shooting a scene and you've got a director who's either not very experienced or not very good. And they say, well, you know, you've just found out that your mother's died, so we really need you to react to this. You know, I'm like, okay, well, where's camera? Oh, right in here. Okay, so the audience has also just found out that my mother's died. They're going to be projecting a lot of shit onto me at this point in time. I'm not, I, I can break down for you and I can give you that if that feels genuine and right. But I guarantee you it's much more interesting for me to just sit there still with the news that my mother has just died. Because the audience, that, you know, like... It's, it's so, that's the dance with film, that's the, I think. And, and, and of course it's var- it varies depending on the type of film and the script and all that sort of stuff. But that's the dance, you know, as an actor. You don't have to go, right, okay, I'm going I'm, I'm to be really upset here, so I'm going to give the most, ups, you know, if it's right, then great. And it's also how it's shot, if you're in like this. And I've said to directors before, <laughs> you know, not so experienced, I was like, trust me. Honestly, trust me. When you're in here, trust me that I'll you'll you'll I promise you you'll believe me. Wow, just be really. Can you give me one where you're like, you know? I'm like, no, I won't, because <laughs> that's the one you're going to use, and I'm going to be look like a dickhead. Yeah, and that's also I think you know the journey you learn as well as an actor to be strong enough to go. This is what I'm going to deliver, and this is why. Trust me, this is this is why. I don't want to stuff up your movie. And the number of times I've had conversations with the directors later who have gone, Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you just, you really held back on that. It's so powerful. (laughs) And I'm like, Yeah, well, so am I.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a certain indulgence, I think, that people uh, perhaps, I'm speaking in very broad terms here, Mm. um, but I guess when you, maybe you're inexperienced or when you're feeling like you want to control the situation, or uh, I guess even if you just, want to be indulgent, that people kind of lean towards that side of things instead of trusting that.
1: Well, and we all do it. The problem is we all do it. Actors do it. Everybody does it. Because you spend four hours on a scene that's only going to be on the screen for 92 seconds. And that's just a little 92 seconds out of all the other 92 seconds that are in the movie. You've got to constantly remember the big picture. You, I think you've really got to remember the big picture and sh- sure you focus and you want to get this scene right You really want to make sure it's right and all that sort of stuff But don't put the entire energy of the entire movie in this one scene and try and get the story across in this one scene Because it's just one scene And if the scene, if the scene only requires me sitting here thinking about the news we've just learnt for the past 25 minutes And the camera's just slowly pushing on on me Just, just do that <laughs> guarantee you that's really watchable because I'm watchable. You know, I'm not bragging, but I'm, I've learnt now I can trust myself and go, you know, it's not like people are going to go, oh, this is boring. Jesus, <laughs> you're just sitting there doing nothing. You know, they're carrying with them the, the 20 minutes of information they've just learnt to this point. So I think, I think the making of a film is tricky too because you spend five or six or eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is putting this all together and you can, you can get too bogged down in the four hours that you spend on that scene. And sure, lots of scenes require lots of really detailed break, you know, make sure the dynamic and the power shifts here and you take the power there on that line, but I'm going to try and sneak it back from you. You've got to understand and get all that stuff right. But
0: how we play it, how we play it is, you know, is the trick. And the audience has come to see a reflection of their own lives. Yeah,
1: that's right, that's right. I was thinking, I was, I was talking to somebody on the last job, I was like going, it'd be really funny to make a film that we call, we call Blah Blah Bland, where you you don't actually have any dialogue in the whole movie. All we say to each other is blah, 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 blah. But you have a story, you write a script, and you have a story, a really dramatic story, whatever, whatever the story what happens to be. But as an exercise, you just do the scenes where all you say is... You know, blah blah blah. You could effectively do the same thing where you have a silent move and you don't speak. But it'd be kind of interesting to see, on some level, whether it works. Just taking the word blah and kind of, you know, (laughs) seeing what you can do with it. Sounds like a very long Meisner. uh, (laughs) That's right. I can see the sort of the critics' headlines now. (laughs) Yes, bland. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much, Guy, for uh, coming and chatting with me. I do have. Two questions that I usually start and end the show with because we just kind of launched into the question that I usually ask at the beginning is, do you remember the first time that you performed? be it for your family or (laughs) at a school environment or whatever that may have been?
1: I did school plays when I was pretty young. Uh, We did The Wizard of Oz and I played the lion and we did a a production that the school wrote called Smith, which was about a little sort of orphan kid in London, so a bit sort of uh, Oliver Twist, I suppose. And I was probably uh, nine or ten. That was so exciting, it was really really exciting to kind of have this, and 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 I sang, you know, there were songs in the in the in the thing as well, and then and then got into local theatre and then started performing in local theatres. So that whole period around the time I was, as I say, nine, ten, eleven, uh, and and performing properly, I suppose, where there is an audience watching. Um, I don't really remember performing at home necessarily. I'm sure we kind of put on silly plays and did silly <laughs> things, but I don't necessarily remember them. Although there are some photos of me in sort of funny costumes doing, you know, doing things. My mum used to love to make costumes, so she was a a needlework teacher and was fantastic at making costumes. So I won the best fancy dress thing at school every year. Right. Because other kids would turn up with a sheet with two holes cut in them, and I'd turn up in a sort of a knight in shining armour costume that mum had paper-macheted and crocheted together. And I looked amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, well, he wins again, (laughs) Mrs. Pierce, you know. just have a wall of trophies. Yeah, Wow, that was about the The extent of the trophies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't have many trophies. Actually, I have a bodybuilding trophy. I won a bodybuilding no. competition when I was sixteen, and I have some fencing um, medals. I won f- fencing competitions and also got seconds and thirds when I was, you know, eleven and twelve. Is it two unique trophies? Yeah, yeah. The bodybuilding one is a, is literally a plastic gold man doing this, yes. you know, <laughs> and I was sixteen. it's <laughs> Sort of the weirdest thing for someone to have won. And then the, 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 the fencing ones are here yeah, are little metals.
0: Right. Have you decided how old Monty has to be before he can watch Memento?
1: <laughs> we do keep talking about you know, when he can watch certain films. No, I haven't decided on what age, but I showed him my showreel the other day. Right. And he sort of sat there kind of like mesmerised, you know. And, of course, I, I haven't watched it for a while, but, you know, there's pretty heavy stuff in there. And I thought, oh, is this right, showing him this? I don't know if it is. And then, of course, I got to the end and he went... Again, <laughs> I went, maybe not, let's watch Pepper Pig. Yeah. <laughs> but he was just watching his face like, hang on a sec, this is all my papa.
0: What? What's going on? Yeah, that would be
1: mind-blowing. Yeah, it might, it
0: may not, you know, it may not be right. Yeah. Oh well, it is what it is. It is what it is. I uh, finish all my conversations with the same question, which is, what makes you silly?
1: What makes me silly I feel like I'm silly all the time. I feel like I have to work not to be silly, actually. I feel like I have to sort of go, right, I'm going out in the world. I better be. Uh, I better sort of be normal. Um, I like to be silly. I really like to, you know, I mean, Monty makes me silly now particularly. I mean, I'm literally crawling around on the floor all the time these days, playing silly <laughs> games with him and acting stuff out and playing with cars. And my knees are taking a bit of a, you know, a bit of a hammering. But yeah, I think my little boy,
0: he makes yeah. me silly. Have you got like any ridiculous songs that you've made up for him? So many. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Lots of them were very inappropriate when he was young. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I've stopped singing to him now because now he repeats back what I say. So, I, you know. But yeah, I make up songs all the time and he's, he sings back too. So I'll all of a sudden, you know, Peas and Salmon, I sing about Peas and Salmon. Peas and salmon, peas and salmon, we like peas and salmon. Peas and salmon, not cheese or hamon. We like peas and salmon. And he sings back. <laughs> so it's just kind of ridiculous. When you go to Spain, will he like cheese and ham-on? Uh Maybe. He did come to Spain because Carice shot uh, some of the... Brian. In fact, I did too, some of the Brian De Palma film there. Oh, man, what uh, was it like to work with him? Well, it was fascinating because I've been a huge fan my entire life. But the film's not great and, you know... We're not sure if it'll see the light of day. Right. Um, they had a few... <laughs> well, when I say the film's not great, the, the whole the sort of production of it was not great. Uh, I think Lost f- in La Mancha I style. think there was a few, yeah, financial problems. So we went to uh, Almeria with uh, Monty when he was... How old was he? Must have been six or seven months old, I think, something like that. Uh, I don't think I'd invented the, the uh, peas and salmon, or cheese no. and ham on song <laughs> at that point.
0: <laughs> i have to take him back to Spain. And yeah, that there. that's right. Well, thank you so much, Guy.